Some of you may not know this, but when I was younger, I was a forklift operator down in an industrial park, and I spent my days down uh, the, you know, loading semis and offloading semis and flatbeds and, 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 and working with big machinery. In our large warehouse, we had several large machines, and it was just a buzz of activity. It was one of those kinds of places where we had, <laughs> over the, the break room, we had a sign that would say, how many days since our last accident or injury? It was one of those kinds of places. And uh, we had danger signs all over the place because management was trying to keep us safe, you know? And so, so here's some of those danger signs, right? Um, uh, I am so glad that at this stage of my life, I work in an environment where I'm not constantly reminded that I could get my hand severed or mutilated or my body crushed, you know what I mean? Uh, and so those are posted everywhere. If you've worked in manufacturing or warehouse work, you've seen the same, right? The danger signs aren't just in industrial parks, obviously. I mean, we see danger signs everywhere we go warning us about the things that could harm us. And, and, and many of them are really good. And many of them are what's called universal. In other words, they're so clear, they don't actually have to have any words on them, right? So here's a few examples of that. So at the bottom left corner, that, that's the high voltage, right? That, that warns you that you could get electrically shocked. And then next to that, we have a, a biohazard. So if you're working with you know, ha hazardous materials like radiation above there, and, and then next to that, you just have just general death, right? This is just a bad thing. <laughs> Stay away from it kind of a thing. And, and these are good for our society. These warnings, they keep us safe. They tell us what to avoid or where to avoid and warn us of the consequences if we ignore those signs. Now, as I was looking for danger signs, it occurred to me that there's one sign, no matter how much I looked and Googled, I couldn't find, and that was a danger sign to warn of dangerous beliefs. Right? Just couldn't find that one. And that boy, wouldn't that be a very helpful thing in our world uh, to have a symbol that says dangerous beliefs? Now, if you're looking for a church, that would be helpful, right? You go on the Yelp page, you're like, oh, I'll go there. Oh, there's the dangerous belief sign. No, no, no. Or uh, for those of you who might be dating, wouldn't that be good? Hey, she looks like the one or he looks like, no, there's that danger sign on their profile. I'm going to avoid that, right? Danger signs, uh, dangerous beliefs are hard to spot because oftentimes they don't seem very dangerous at all. In fact, dangerous beliefs tend to appeal to something that we desire. They tend to appeal to the things we want. That that's what makes them so dangerous in some sense. Dangerous beliefs are often hooking us into the things that we want or desire. That becomes the draw. And they prey upon people who want certain things to be true, and that's why they're susceptible to those beliefs. Sometimes it really is hard to spot error from truth because sometimes they're almost impossible to tell the difference. And this isn't a new phenomenon. Second century church father, Irenaeus of Lyons, we've, we've quoted him before. Error, he says, indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. 
but it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. Friends, this is why the message of 1 Timothy is so important for the modern church. Because 1 Timothy is a, is a literary, it is a, it is a written danger sign to warn the church of the drift of doctrinal error. The drift from truth that is so common in culture, even in Christian culture, where the very nature of truth is up for grabs and is so much confusion surrounding it. As you heard Mike reading, this concern actually brackets, it bookends the book of 1 Timothy. The very first chapter, verse 3, we read that Paul says, Timothy, the reason I left you behind was that you charged certain people not to teach different doctrine. And he ends the book at the very last section of it in chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard the trust that was entrusted to you and avoid these kinds of things that have caused people to really shipwreck their faith. And this really shouldn't surprise us, because just several years earlier, Paul warned this very church that this could be a possibility. You remember in Acts chapter 20, let's look at it right now, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 31. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Ephesus is the church that Timothy is now the pastor of. Verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So friends, if this could happen at the church that Paul the apostle pastored for a number of years and now Timothy pastored, if it could happen at that church, then it can happen at any church, including this one. So this morning, we, we want to look at what Paul has to say about this. We want to look at what Paul has to say when he warns us of the danger of false teachers, then to look at where false teaching leads you, and finally, how to stay true to the end. And there's a lot in here, so uh, I like how Taylor says, buckle up, right? Let's look at them one at a time. Beware of false teachers. As I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, he says in verse 3 and 4. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make these confident assertions. Timothy, guard the trust, avoid irreverent babble and speculations. Some people swerving from these things have shipwrecked their faith, he says. Now, the first thing we need to note here is that we don't know exactly the content of the teaching that Timothy faced. Now, Paul does give us some hints here. It has something to do with, with myths and, and genealogies. So you 23andMe and Ancestry.com people, I don't know. I'm just kidding. You, you, you are not in danger of being a false teacher. Likely that the teaching that, that Paul is talking about here has something to do with uh, texts from the Old Testament, obviously, perhaps with the lineage of the Jews, uh, probably some combination of some bizarre ideas that were probably neither really Jewish nor Christian, but a, a hybrid of the two. Now, these believers obviously knew exactly what Paul was talking about, what the teaching that was going around in the church, 
But Paul was more concerned in his letter to Timothy about the effect of the teaching, not as much the content of the teaching. Now, I, th I think the ambiguity is intentional on part of the Holy Spirit. Because if, if Paul went on in, in great detail about the details of the false teaching, obviously it would be very specific and relevant to their time, but for us, 21 centuries removed from the fact, it'd be very irrelevant and therefore we wouldn't care really much at all what's going on in this book. As a result, because it's a bit ambiguous, we are forced to think more carefully about the nuances of false teaching. We, we can't just really get rid of this, like say you can maybe reading the book of Colossians when they're talking about astral planes and spiritual levels and hierarchies out there. And we could dismiss that maybe, but here in Timothy, we're not quite sure what he's talking about. We need to be a little bit more careful. And the first thing I think we need to do in showing care is to not vilify these false teachers too quickly. Right, like if you're a well-taught Christian, when you think of false teacher, you're, you're probably thinking of like Jafar from Aladdin, right? This really skinny, tall guy who's really nefarious looking and always kind of folding his hands and he's got a maybe deformed animal on his shoulder and he just, he just looks like bad news. Like if, if he came in, the ushers would probably tackle him or take him outside, right? That, that's what you think of. But, but that's too easy to dismiss. That's too easy to ignore. I think these false teachers were probably well-intended people. Look to the person to your left or right. They probably look like that. They look like somebody you'd want to get to know. they they probably somebody that you might trust. You see, if we have such a one-dimensional view of Scripture, we can just dismiss it all the time. Like, oh, we would never fall into false teaching because if Jafar walked in here, I would know. Don't listen to him, Right? But these false teachers were probably just like any one of us. In fact, I could see, now to be clear, there are those kinds, right? There are those kinds, and they're described as that. Paul calls them these wolves in sheep's clothing, and there are those. But by and large, we're pretty savvy. We don't have to worry about those. We probably have to worry about the ones that, that maybe they were dealing with there. That, 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 that it came from a good place. I could honestly see within the church at Ephesus, people having good intentions, saying something like, guys, Ephesus is such a, a wicked and sinful city, we need to provide really strong guidelines uh, about what it means to be a Christian and help these converts by giving them a bunch of rules that they can follow in their lives, right? Or I could see the false teaching starting from something like this, guys, Ephesus is such a wicked and sinful city, we need to be careful that they don't think we're the stodgy, out-of-touch religious types. I mean, after all, we're really just like them. We're just forgiven. So let's downplay all the guidelines and rules of what it means to be a Christian. You can see how very easily both those mentalities would have existed. And you can see there's some logic in there. And maybe some of you are more leaning towards one than the other. It's very easy to have the very best of intentions end up with the worst of mistakes. To, to provide strong lists of Christian do's and don'ts, that sounds like a good idea to some of you, right? To play down everything that made Christianity an obstacle to others, that sounds like a good idea to some of you. 
And that's the reality. And within a church, you know, there are those of us that have a, well, it's called a legalistic kind of orientation, right? That, that it's about the rules, it's about commands, we've got to follow that. And then there are those of us, and if you're regular at Christ Community, you know this word. If you're new, here's a, here's a big word you can impress your friends with. You're an antinomian. Yeah, that means, that's from the Greek word, which means no law, Right? So you don't believe because it's all about grace. There's no law. God loves us. He accepts us. We don't have to do anything. And within any church, there's a mix of us. And some of you are legalists and some of you are antinomians. In my house, there's a mix of us. My wife, she never met a rule she didn't like. She's, she's a legalist. I never met a rule I didn't want to break. I'm an antinomian, right? That's, that's the way the human heart is. I am in trouble because I did not get permission. I just, that just came out. And she's smiling because she's gracious. I'm going to get it. I know, I'm just kidding. Because I broke the rule, right? The rule is I got to talk to her and I broke it. So see, as an antinomian, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. The, the point is we have an impulse. If you're the kind of person that you get nervous when someone's bashing obedience and following commands, there's a good chance you're a legalist. If you're the person that when you get nervous when somebody bashes uh, freedoms in Christ and grace, there's a good chance you're an antinomian. That's just the reality, right? Either one of those sounds good, but neither one of those is the gospel because it's not about the law. The law, whether you abide by it or you ignore it, the law is a reflection of the character of God, this, this dynamic of relationship. I don't want to, to, to denounce the reflection of his law. Neither do I want to worship the reflection of him. I want to worship him. But the point is, False teaching is often way more subtle than we realize. And we can't just discard it and say, well, I can spot it very easily. I'm never in danger of buying into false teaching or being a false teacher. Because look at what Paul said in verse 7. He said, look, these very people desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make these confident assertions. So Paul is warning them about the danger of false teachers. So, so how do we be on guard against that? Let me just give you two suggestions before I move on to the next point. Number one, here's two ways to keep your doctrine sound. Um, learn to study the Bible. I know that seems so obvious, but let, let, let me just say that, that that is so true. Friends, we are at a, at a time and a period of life where, where we have literacy like never before. We have resources like never before. The book spot is, I mean, you literally, if you can't buy a book, you can just take one for free and you can learn and grow. Don't be a one-hour Christian. Right? We don't call it the Lord's hour, right? We call it the Lord's what? The Lord's day. Sunday is the time to gather with the people, to get into the Word, to get equipped, and you don't have time to do that during the week oftentimes, so, so stay and, and join our Disciple Makers class. We're starting a new session today, I think, on the essentials of the faith, where men, laymen from this church have poured hours to teach, and they're going to equip you. Learn hermeneutics, learn theology, learn the history of the church, be a student Keep your finger in 1 Timothy. Go to, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. So just a couple pages to the right. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Be a student. Friends, don't be anti-intellectual with your faith. 
We've talked about this. The last thing this world needs is for the Christian church to check its mind out. Engage. Double in. Don't be anti-intellectual with your faith. So that's the first one. Study the Bible. That's a very personal one. Here's a second one. Learn, learn, the, learn to study the Bible and then learn in community. Be in a place where your hermeneutics and your theology and your history can be tested, can be verified, can be proven and refined together. Be a church member. And it is not about you and Jesus and your Bible at Starbucks or at the beach. That is not biblical Christianity. That is modernistic Christianity. Reject the idea that simply because you have a Bible and some good books, that's all you need. Be in community. Don't be antisocial with your faith, right? So if the first one is don't be anti-intellectual, the second one is don't be antisocial. Be in community. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul says this, practice these things, devote yourself to them. Why? So that all may see your progress. Who's that? That's us. Do these things so we can all see your progress. So the first one, be a student. Don't be anti-intellectual with your faith. The second one, be a church member. Don't be antisocial with your faith. And I'm excited at our, at our uh, congregational meeting next week. We are going to roll out a church covenant as a church. Now, for some people, that, that's like innovative and new, like, wow, church covenant. Well, that's pretty trendy, actually. No, if you, if you know anything about church history, that's historically what Christians always had. Now, we're not going to tell you stuff like don't see R-rated movies or don't chew tobacco. That, that's foolish, right? A church covenant is merely saying, look, we recognize there's obligations and responsibilities placed on us as a community of faith, and we want to give profession to that, and we want to live out. Our statement of faith says how we will believe, but our church covenant is saying how we're going to behave in light of that so that we can all keep each other lovingly, supportively uh, accountable. Be in community. Those two things, learning to study your Bible and learning in community, are safeguards to help you from wandering off into different doctrine. But now, let's look at the second thing, um, where this false teaching leads. Look at the chapter 1, verse 4. At the end of verse 4, Paul says, these things promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Look at verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. And then in chapter 6, verse 21, at the very end of the book, but by professing these things, this false knowledge, they have swerved away from the faith. Now, Paul is saying this is a strong contrast between where these doctrines lead and, and, and at the end, really at the end of chapter 6, it leads to all kinds of friction in the church. If, you, if you're a note taker, write down chapter 6, verse 3 to 5. Envy, slander, dissension. I mean, it just messes up this local church fellowship. And that's what kind of, uh, oops, wrong one. We're going to get to that in a little bit. That, that's where speculation and false teaching will always lead. I think of James. James talks about the wisdom that comes from above is peaceable and kind. But worldly wisdom just leads to all kind of relational discord, right? Now, I'll never forget um, years ago, when I was just starting Bible college, 
I went to see one of these popular teachers that was making the way, ray, uh, uh, circuit around the, church, the evangelical churches, really well known. Uh, most of, many of you older saints would know this person, but I'm not going to mention his name. Um, but I remember listening to a sermon, and ironically, it was on a genealogy from the Old Testament. And it was really cool because when you, when you interpreted and translated the names of everybody in this genealogy in this very early chapter of the book of Genesis, you got the gospel message. I mean, it was the coolest thing I ever heard. I was like, wow, that's amazing. So I thought, I'm going to bring that home, bring that back to my school, and this is a good exercise for the first-year Hebrew students to, to translate this, this bizarre chapter in the early section of Genesis, was Genesis 5, if you're wondering. And, and when they translate the names, and they're going to see the gospel message, and they're going to think, Rick, you're like a Hebrew genius. You know, I was like, woohoo! But before I do that, I should actually do it myself to just make sure. And I got to tell you, I, I couldn't come up with the, the same thing. I mean, I, I, it was like, no matter how much I tried to change, like broadly, could this be that? I could get nothing. So I was really discouraged because clearly everyone loved this Bible teacher. Everyone was, you know, I mean, he was the all that in a bag of chips kind of guy. I must be the problem. So for a month, I kept trying to figure this out until I came across a theologian from Oxford in England. And for some reason in this journal article, he's talking about this chapter, and the foolishness of translating the names. And I was like, oh my gosh, maybe he heard the same thing, because it turns out, as he made the point, that this was before Hebrew was Hebrew. This is like Genesis 5. These names are likely Akkadian or some kind of Sanskrit, so trying to translate them from your Hebrew Bible to make some kind of message is foolish. And I was like, oh man, this guy needs to know this. <laughs> So, so he was teaching at a big church, and here I am, you know, 24, long hair, tattooed, like, I know my Hebrew. I've been studying it for a semester. <laughs> so I stood in line to talk to this guy like everyone else, and when I got to the table, I didn't have a book for him to sign. I said, okay, I'm going to say his name is Roger. I was like, Roger. I introduced myself, and I said, there's a problem. Your, your sermon doesn't work because F.F. Bruce says this, and it was clear he, I caught him. And he did not want that. And he had his, his men, his handlers, quickly remove me from the situation. And I remember, but that was good for me because I was getting so into, we had all these amazing Bible teachers teaching us cool stuff from the Bible and getting all into that. And I realized how far off the gospel I had gotten and got sucked into the endless fascination of arcane biblical truths. And guys, let's be honest, there's a lot of amazing things in the Bible. Like Genesis 6, the sons of God thought the, the women, the, the, the daughters of men were beautiful, came together, and they made giants of the land, the Nephilim. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Or Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees this wheel, and it's this amazing thing. And some people think it was an alien abduction. Some people think Ezekiel was smoking weed. No joke, that's what it was, right? Or, or uh, uh, Revelation chapter 9, those aren't locusts coming out of the pit. Those are Apache helicopters. Right? And so we get all this stuff we, we study, and they're fascinating, and they're speculative, and they take us away from the gospel message. And that's what false teaching does. And then we start arguing about these things, and we get far off what the gospel is. But notice what Paul says. Verse 5 says, the aim of our charge is love. But false teaching results in speculation and envy because maybe you're more insightful than I am. Now i got to up you and come up with something more creative, and then we just lose it completely. Friends, I want to show you something that, that I think is very powerful. It's, I want you to notice something in verse 6. Okay, so here's that slide, verse 6. Certain persons 
by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. I love that the Word of God is so inspired that we can study it this way. Friends, just the grammar. Look at the grammar here. Notice the voice of those verbs. Don't freak out, you English. You people don't like English. But what's the voice of the verb? By swerving away from these, it's an active voice. In other words, if, if you forgot, an active voice means the subject does the action of the verb. Passive voice means that the, the action of the verb happens to the subject. By swerving away from these, they have wandered into vain discussion. There's a pattern of this happening throughout all of Scripture. Here's another one in 2 Timothy 4. And will turn away from listening to the truth, active verb, and wander off into myths, passive verb. Here's the last one I want to show you from Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, that's active, or give thanks to Him, active. But they became futile in their thinking, passive, and their foolish hearts were darkened, passive. What am I getting at here, friends? When you actively reject the teaching of God's truth, something inevitably happens to you. In every case, these people were actively rejecting some form of God's revelation, and they wandered away into myths and vain discussion. They wandered away into myths. Their hearts became darkened, and their thinking became futile. This is a pattern we see all throughout the Scriptures. When we reject the Word of God, its clear teaching, we don't stay neutral. Something happens to us. And we see here just three examples of when we ignore the teaching of God's Word, we will be wandered off into error. And we see it very clearly here. Now, this certainly is true outside of the church, friends, but this can also happen within the church. Notice who's Paul writing to, people within the Ephesian church. In verse 6, he's talking to people who are in that church beginning to teach different doctrines. Friends, let me say this. It may sound controversial, but you can be a Christian and still reject biblical truth in your life. You can be a Christian and reject biblical truth in your life. And, and by that, I also mean kind of the application of it to your life. You can be a Christian. You can as ascribe to it intellectually. You can assent to it and yet still reject the application in your life. You might believe the gospel but that does not mean you believe the thousand implications of that gospel for the way you live. Let me say that again. You can believe the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. I'm a sinner. He's the only way to salvation. I trust Him. You can believe the gospel message and still reject the thousand implications of what that gospel means for the way you live your life. This past Tuesday, Lori and I were doing some counseling to this dear couple who's very dear to us. And I had to give a word of admonishment to this young wife about her fears. And to her great credit, she owned it and recognized it as something in her life that she needs to repent from and grow in faith. What was so beautiful to see is that she did not psychoanalyze it away. She did not justify it because she had a difficult childhood. She did not blame Schiff and say that her husband is not providing the security he needs to provide. Now, let me be clear. Those can be issues to deal with. But after recognizing that at the core, she doesn't believe the promises of the gospel as much as she believes the promises of fear. So I want to be clear on that. Maybe her husband, in this case, he, he did a great job, but... but Maybe her husband's not providing security. Maybe she had a very tumultuous, uh, poverty-stricken childhood. 
maybe she has a particular personality temperament. Those are all things we want to acknowledge and work through, but only after she recognizes the fundamental thing is that she doesn't believe the promises of the gospel. She believes the false prophet of fear, and fear is always a false prophet. And it was prophesying doom and, and, and danger, and it was causing her faith to shrivel up. And she recognized it. And she said, I got to repent of that. I got to grow in faith. Like these false teachers, friends, to the degree we're not holding fast to the teachings of Christ, our lives will get filled with speculations rather than the outworking of God's plan by faith. That's what he's talking about in verse 4. Your life may not be filled with doctrinal heresy, but it will get be filled with practical heresy because you're just not applying the things you know to be true. Okay, so then how do we um, stay true to the end, right? How do we stay true to the end? You might say, well, that's easy. You just said, hold fast to the teachings of Christ. Yeah, yes, and, and no. It's, it's yes and no, right? Yes, we do have to hold fast to the teachings of Christ, but no, if you think that the teachings of Christ are merely intellectual, right? Yes, we've got to hold fast to the teachings of Christ, but no, if you just think that they are simply intellectual, that brings us to our last point. How do we stay true to the end? We're going to focus on verse 5 here where Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, we already noted the stark contrast between the apostolic teaching and, and the, the kind of false teaching between verses 4 and 5. One leads to vain discussions and, and envy and quarreling. The other is aimed toward love. But notice what Paul says here in verse 5. Our charge is love uh, that issues, in other words, comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If the aim of our charge, Paul is saying, our, the aim of our charge, the goal of our charge, what we're doing is love, and that applies to us as well. This is not just a letter to Timothy. This is a letter to all Christians. But here's the problem. Now, if the aim of our charge is love, you might be thinking, well, then I've got some problems because I'm not so good at love. Now, for those of you who are really good at love, the sermon's done. I've got nothing for you. If you're good at love, you don't need to hear anything else. You can go help get the donuts ready for us for during the break, right? Because, I mean, love stinks of others, right? So I'm just being honest. But if you're like me and love is a hard thing, let's see what God's Word says to us on this. How do we get better at that? If the aim of char their charge is love, and, and we know this is so much of a biblical teaching that love is the moving factor. And if we're going to be honest, we're not really good at it, then how do we get better at it? Notice what Paul says here about love. Love does not produce a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. No, actually, Paul has it the other way around. Paul says love issues, love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. See, we often think that, that love produces these things, but the reality is love is the result of those things. In other words, friends, according to what we're looking at, the source of love comes from this, this triad of a heart cleansed of sin, a conscience free from guilt, and a faith devoid of hypocrisy. 
love, according to 1 Timothy 1.5 here, the Holy Spirit wrote this, love comes from this combination of a heart that's been cleansed of sin, a conscience that is free from guilt, and, and a faith that's devoid of hypocrisy. Biblical love is not merely an emotional sentiment or a, a, a subjective euphoric feeling. That's the view of love in the world today. That's what people in the world think love is. It's merely this, this nostalgic or sentimental or emotional feeling. It's subjective because it's just in my heart, and it's just very euphoric, and I just love it, and I love love. That's love. That is not what the Bible says love is. Love includes that. It can, right? We don't want to be the kind of the person like, man, I'm just, I love people. I just love. I'm just overflowing with love and joy, right? But we do know Christians who act that way, right? So I'm just saying that that's not the definition. It includes that, but like so much, it transcends it. Friends, according to what we're reading, love is the result of practice, practiced actions and intentions. Love is the result of practice actions and intentions. Paul tells Timothy, these false teachers got into vain discussions and as a result shipwrecked their faith because they abandoned the pursuit of biblical love. Look at it right there. He says it in verse 6. By swerving from these, they have gone off. Now, what is the these? What is that pronoun referring to? Look, look right there. The Bible's literally telling you what it's saying. By swerving from these, the pronoun's referring to the antecedent. It's not referring to other teaching. It's referring to a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. By swerving from these lifestyle, these actions, they wandered off into all this bad teaching. Friends, there's a really important truth we need to zero in on here. People choose to believe what they want, want to believe, not necessarily because it's intellectually more acceptable, but because they've abandoned the biblical notion of what love demands of them. In other words, the root of so many false gospels are not intellectual problems, but moral problems. We don't want to do the hard work of what the Bible says is love, so I will adopt a worldview that is more easy to the way I want to live. That's more often what takes place. And I see it on Facebook. My friends who once walked in the faith with me make a mockery of it, and I know the backstory. They never got intellectually reasoned out of it. They wanted their sin. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And so they got to find a worldview that's going to justify it. They didn't have an intellectual problem. It was a moral problem. Biblical love demanded too much of them, and they didn't want to pay that price. So they found another definition of love that would work for them. And we're seeing that same thing here. Friends, it's always easier to live our lives on how we feel like we want to live our lives than from convictions born from God's Word. We know that. I mean, you don't, you don't need me to tell you that. You, you know that. Maybe you just need reminding, right? We always say, friends, that, that beliefs will impact how we behave. That's true enough. But what we're actually seeing here, too, is that how we behave will impact what we choose to believe, right? How we behave, how we live will, choose, will also impact what we choose to believe, and so we're being presented with a radical understanding of love and how that grows. So, so how, how do we need to live so that we grow in love, so that we continue to be fertile ground for the gospel message? So let's look at them one at a time. First, we need to have a pure heart. 
Okay, so let me tell you what that doesn't mean. A pure heart does not mean you're a goody-two-shoe, Mother Teresa, Gandhi kind of disposition. Actually, it's the exact opposite of that. It's the exact opposite. Pure, the word pure comes from the Greek word katharis, where we get the English word uh, catharsis, right? Cathartic. You've heard the expression, oh man, that was so cathartic. It was like a purge. It was, it was a cleansing, right? It's, it's, it's so cathartic for me. A pure heart, ironically, is not a heart that is like uh, uh, pure and righteous and good. No, a pure heart is a heart that recognizes the filth and grime in it and confesses that, catharsis it, to be clean from it. So someone with a pure heart isn't somebody who's already there. Someone with a pure heart is someone who recognizes, I am so far from there. I, there's, there's filth, there's dirt, there's, I need to be cleansed from it. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, same Greek word, catharsis, from all unrighteousness. So a pure heart recognizes its guilt and rejoices in the forgiveness it receives. You grow in love because you know you are a recipient of great love. You grow in love because you know you've been given great love. You've been cleansed. Second, a good conscience. The Bible teaches us, friends, that all humanity, right, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, all of us, all humanity, Christian, not Christian, is made in the image of God. Genesis 1 tells us that. Therefore, we have a sense of the rightness or wrongness of our actions before Him. Everyone has this moral sense. It's called the conscience. And Paul says, a good conscience, what he means by good is that your conscience is working the way it should. You haven't seared it. You haven't blunted it. You haven't cauterized it. We, we know that can happen. You, you've kept your conscience sensitive. You, you're, you're, you're letting yourself be convicted about things you should and shouldn't do. You don't have to be a Christian for that to happen, Right? You just are keeping yourself aware that my actions have a moral quality to them. Are they good or are they bad? You're having a good conscience. And this, by the way, is how you get to the point of recognizing your sin so that you might get catharsis. So the good con your conscience is working. Friends, we live in a culture that's always trying to desensitize your conscience. What are you doing to keep your conscience sensitive? What are you doing to keep yourself shockable to the world? Not naive, but shockable, right? Finally, a sincere faith. And faith here is the general meaning of trust and reliance we find throughout the whole New Testament. But the last and ultimate requirement is that one trusts God to enable, one trusts God that He, is, he will enable us to do that which is very hard. Right out of the gate, recognizing I, I, I sincerely, and, and the adjective sincere means that it's a genuine realization. You're not just saying, I have faith, and you're just not really thinking about it. You are thinking about it. Am I trusting God? I, I, I got to trust Him to enable me to do the thing that's really hard, because I don't want to do it. Can, can I tell you, there's, I, I said there's two people in this room. I, there's two people. Everything comes down to two people in my mind. But um, you're either going to be a feelings-oriented Christian or you're going to be an obedience-oriented Christian. And if you just live by your feelings, you're, you're, you're going to be all over the place, friends. You want to be an obedience-oriented Christian. I, I'm so glad Jesus was an obedience-oriented Christ because you know what? He didn't feel like going to the cross. We, see, we saw that in the Gospel of John. I'm so glad He wasn't feelings-led, but He said, I want to be led by doing what is right. 
And that, that's what Paul's talking about here. Friends, there's more to love than these, but this is what Paul focuses on. And it begins with a genuine sense of trusting God to enable me to do hard things, a life focused on good rather than merely feeling good, and a conscious recognition of my sin, knowing I can be cleansed for, the, for, for my sins. These, if you ruminate on if you, if you marinate in that, result in love, which is the aim of Paul's charge to keep the church true to her task. Friends, it's dangerous for a church to focus merely on only doctrine or lifestyle. As Paul makes clear, the Christian life is always a balance of both. What we believe will shape how we live, but how we live will also impact what we're willing to believe. As the body of Christ, um, we can do no less. We need to guard the doctrine given to us, but do so with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your grace that you give us your word. And it, it, it challenges us, it, it, it helps to shape us, it guides us, and we need that. We need to be exposed to it constantly. Father, help us to be the kinds of people that are constantly asking, how can the thousand implications of the gospel be, be brought into my life? How can I keep my conscience sensitive? How can I turn from my sin? Am I turning from my sin? Am I confessing my sins? Father, we thank you for the resources you give to us in a local church where we can do all these things amongst brothers and sisters who get it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.